Hi, I'm Brian Dillon, and this is the first Fitzcarraldo Editions podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Power, and hello and welcome, Brian Dillon. I could spend a lot of time outlining Brian's career to date, his 12 books, his curatorial work at the Hayward and Tate Galleries, his journalism, public talks, lectures, and so on, but I'd rather dive into the work and our conversation. So instead, I'll simply say that he's one of the outstanding essayists of his generation, admired by Lydia Davis, John Banville, James Wood, Maggie Nelson, and many more besides. We're here today to discuss four of Brian's books of essays, In the Dark Room, first published in 2005 and reissued by Fitzcarraldo in 2018, and then what's become known as the trilogy, Essayism from 2017, 2020's Suppose a Sentence, and his new book Affinities, which as we speak has just been published and is garnering justifiably outstanding reviews. Brian, congratulations on having another book out in the world. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, the books in, in the trilogy look in turn at essays, at single sentences, and now images, and they share a lot of connective tissue with one another. But In the Dark Room, I think, also possesses qualities that, that reappear in the trilogy. So using an organising principle that you're fond of yourself, the, the strictly chronological, I'd like to start our conversation with your first book and then move through to the trilogy. Does that sound That makes right total sense. So let's start close to shore with the basics. Um, at the outset of In the Dark Room, you talk about the memory palace, a technique for remembering that comes to us from Cicero's De Oratore. I wonder, from a practical point of view, how do you store and recall the material for your books, books that are in one respect great troves of, of remembered quotations? What's your approach to, to retaining all these pieces? That's such a good question. I think with the, with the first book, in the Dark Room comes out of, um, it came out in 2005. Its origins are almost a decade before that. Um, I was getting towards the end of finishing a PhD. And I, I had, basically I had a breakdown. I was kind of 27, I was broke. Um, my studies weren't going terribly well. And I found myself sitting alone at night looking at family photographs. I had a, uh, a folder with actually not many pictures, maybe about 30 photos. And suddenly, for no good reason really, started writing about them. And I filled a notebook with, um, I mean, I think the project really was to just describe what was in these pictures. And I hadn't really looked at them till since uh, probably my early 20s. Um, my mother died when I was 16 and my dad when I was 21. And I didn't have very much left um, from my family home. I had some photos, a few objects that I also write about uh, in that book. But I sat there kind of night after night, very aware that this was a kind of meaningless process, you know, <laughs> that it was it was it was almost embarrassing. And I, I of course, I had in mind, you know, other people writing about family photographs, uh, Nabokov, Roland Barthes and uh, and so on. So it felt incredibly self-conscious um, on the one hand and on the other hand, weirdly liberating. And the origins, I think, of my first book and, and possibly of everything that I've written, I think, come from that moment. Uh, of realizing that first, I wasn't really an academic, I wasn't a scholar, 
um, and crawling my way towards something else. And, you know, I filled this notebook and I just put it away for years. Um, and actually, uh, I think the notebook is probably the thing um, because the other stuff that you've just described, um, the kind of, you know, um, constellation of, uh, of writers, of artists, of images, etc. That's the kind of parallel thing that I had been kind of amassing also for years alongside the stuff that I was supposed to be officially doing, you know, being a student, being a graduate student. But I would fill these notebooks with just kind of like scraps of things. I was looking at them, uh, the very early ones recently, from, which are from kind of 30 years ago. Um, and apparently I, I wanted to get in touch with John Cage, you know, and I, I found John Cage's home address. He died about a week later. Um, so I, I had this um, idea, probably, right, I think, that alongside this ambition to be a scholar of some sort, there was this other world, and it was a world of, of more experimental art and literature. But then it was also um, in that kind of nighttime notebook it was also something more personal. Um, so I guess that's the kind of answer is is a kind of shambolic, a sort of chaotic amassing of just notes, really. And and the book is, it's an investigation of memory, how it works, the quality and content of what we remember and how we might recover parts of our past. But it's also very much, as you, as you mentioned there, a book about your family. Was it always going to be an investigation via memoir or were you interested in in the in the action and function of memory before it became a story about your specific family um that book is is the kind of confluence of two things so this moment in the late 90s where i was you know filling this notebook with descriptions of uh, of photos which were also obviously descriptions of memories um and I had this notion, I had this idea around kind of 97, 98, that there might be a book in it. And the image that was in my mind um, was the image that's there in the finished thing of my mother's hands. My mother had uh, an autoimmune disease, partly it affected her, her hands. And I had this kind of image of what that was like as a, as a child to try and understand what was happening to her body. Um, and I thought, this is, this is a book, and I gave it a title. Um, I said uh, to, to, to a friend at the time, I said, I, I want to write this book. I think it's called In the Dark Room. And it's about my family. And it's, it's kind of about, you know, images and, uh, and memories. Um, and my friend said, why on earth would anybody want to read that? <laughs> and I think that's kind of interesting in retrospect, because it felt as if there wasn't really a place for that kind of writing. There was, of course, at that stage, late 90s, a, a ready-made genre, the genre of the what was then called the misery memoir. But I didn't quite think that what I wanted to do uh, would fit that because it was somehow more, it was too precise, it was too small, it was about kind of details. Um, so there's that kind of backstory to, to the book. And then later, um, when I had embarked on, you know, the, the, the kind of very tentative beginnings of a kind of freelance writing uh, existence. And I was writing for magazines and newspapers, mostly book reviews, and then uh, after a few years writing about art, writing about culture generally. And I started having conversations uh, with an agent who's still my agent today. And he said, this was, I think, on the basis of my writing something about Walter Benjamin, he said, you should write a book about memory. And he meant a kind of 
cultural history of memory. You know, something with a kind of really, I now think, kind of impossible scale. Um, uh, a history of how culturally and technologically and philosophically um, we record, think about, orient ourselves to, uh, to, to memory. And I wrote a proposal for it. And somewhere in the writing of the proposal, um, I touched on the other book, the previous, the kind of ghost book that had never been written, um, the personal book, and uh, sent this proposal off. Um, and it went to a publisher. It's the, the first publisher of that book uh, in Penguin Ireland. And the editor there, Brendan Barrington, a wonderful editor, um, picked out the personal stuff and said, you know, actually, that's your book. Or mm. if that's not quite your book, all of the philosophical stuff, the literary side, the art, etc., that's essential because that's you. But actually, this is a book about you. Um, and so those are the two strands of that book. And it turned into this odd thing that we were all, I was afraid, and uh, I think Penguin were afraid, to call a memoir because it wasn't quite, it was something, something else. Now, I think I would just call it a memoir or maybe I'd call it an essay. Mm. Um, but this is, you know, almost 20 years ago. And I, I think there, it, it didn't seem like there was quite a vocabulary or a label to put on what I thought I was doing. Well, I think that that sitting athwart or sitting in between is a very interesting aspect of your of your work and your affinities as well, which I'd like to come back to later. But but in the dark room, it's it's intimately concerned with your childhood and your young adulthood. And you remember, you know, details of the house you grew up in a carpet. There was a landscape, a mysterious opening cut into a wall. These things that we do when we're children kind of claiming or imaginatively exploring our our domestic space can you give us a brief sense of where you were growing up and and who your parents were yes of course i i grew up in uh, a 1930s suburb um, of dublin when the book came out there, there was a review in one of the british papers that said i grew up in a kind of rundown estate and and that i thought was really interesting because because the details that they were picking up on were details of a kind of um, agedness and 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 slightly kind of rundown uh, place, but it wasn't. It was a it was a kind of genteel thirties suburb, about twenty minutes uh, walk from the centre of town. And my father was uh, a civil servant. He had left school when he was fourteen, um, worked for the post office, and worked his way up um, and uh, went to college. And, you know, part-time when he was in his 30s. And he was a voracious reader. Um, and he was, you know, uh, an odd combination, um, which seems historically very rooted, of somebody who was deeply conventional um, and quite pious. And on the other hand, intellectually, really adventurous. Um, and his library was the kind of, you know, the, the, the place where, where that was visible really um, he was reading um, and I would pull off the shelves as a uh, as a kid and certainly as a, as a teenager he was reading Freud and you know Marcuse and uh, Simone de Beauvoir and people um, all of it seemed to me at the time um, quite at odds with the other things that he was which was this very conventional person living uh, on a very quiet street mostly surrounded by older people who'd been there since the 1930s 
Um, my mother came from um, Kerry in the southwest of Ireland um, from a farming family. And she had left home at 18 because she was kind of, you know, academically a kind of star and had moved to Dublin, joined the civil service um, and met my father, I think in the late 50s. There's a photograph in the book, in, in the dark room, um, of my parents crossing O'Connell Bridge in the center of Dublin. And um, I think that it must be the late 50s or very early 60s, partly because my father has hair and uh, secondly, because of my mother's dress. And so they, they must have been together. I, I, it's odd, isn't it, that I say they must have been, but this is the kind of detail that I, that I don't know about them. They must have been together for about a decade before they uh, married in, in 68. And, and they were incredibly, or they look to me now, rather glamorous. But they were also part of um, uh, quite a conventional, uh, obviously in the 50s and 60s, quite a restrictive Irish culture. Um, they married in 68. My mother, of course, at that point, gave up work. Your mother, as you mentioned um, before, she had this autoimmune disease, scleroderma or, or systemic sclerosis, a disease which you write ruled our household for the several years between its its onset and, and her death. But you say in a very powerful moment that towards the, the end, when your mother was depressed and would say she was going to die soon, you'd become angry with her. Is it true to say that you only really understood her plight later on when you'd experienced depression yourself? Possibly. I mean, I might have, I might have realized or understood that anger and maybe under, understood why a child or a teenager might react like that. I might have understood that quite quickly after she died, actually. Mm. Um, it's interesting, the, you know, I, I think it's not uncommon, um, not only for kids and parents, but, but for, for people in general, um, to react with a kind of anger, a sort of fury to, to the illness or the weakness or the plight um, of people they love and people close to them. Um, and I wanted, I suppose, in the, in the book to kind of recapture that sense of, um, you know, our, ours was a family that that didn't really have any kind of vocabulary um, or ability to deal with emotion. I think I say somewhere in the book um, there were no real emotions expressed other than fury. <laughs> um, and so perhaps that fury stands in for, of course, it stands in for everything else. Um, that that a teenage boy is feeling at that point, what watching his mother decline and listening to his mother say that that she is probably going to die, disbelieving it and and being therefore furious or not wanting to believe it, etc. Um, and I wanted, I suppose, in the book to kind of capture some of those states that it seemed were not so much spoken of in terms of how. Um, a child or an adolescent might experience that kind of loss. Um, and fury is one of them, and, and shame is the other. And I think, you mm. know, subsequently talking to, to friends who um, lost parents when they were kids, um, that feeling of shame is, is really, really common. Um, I wouldn't have known that. I wouldn't have known that as a teenager, and I wouldn't have known it in my 20s when I started to write about it either. Um, but it's one of the things, by the time I got to write the book, 2004, 2005, 
um, that I really wanted to try and capture that sense of a kind of locked in state that I think happens a lot when children lose parents or are parents of people who are sick, chronically mm. ill. That sense that you are kind of locked in this space, familial space, and sometimes literally the, the space of the house, um, that is utterly different from the people around you, that your family is somehow um, inherently different. It's very, it's very powerfully expressed, and I think it's 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 blended so interestingly with, you know, with the the cultural artifacts that you bring in, and in terms of your of your style, I find it notable and illustrative actually. That at one point in the book you quote an academic source, and then you discuss Citizen Kane, and the academic text you quote from is by no means jargon filled or or super challenging or anything, but your style especially when you read it sort of directly alongside it, is so much more uh, warm and personally textured. And I would say far more fascinating and, and communicative as well because of that. You know, you, you converse with the reader. You don't, you don't lecture. You were an academic. Perhaps you still identify as one. I know you still teach. Um, but either way, did you have to sort of unlearn academic habits in coming to write the way you write? I think it was a process, I mean, it, it wasn't so much an unlearning as a sort of, you know, running, screaming away, in a way, <laughs> from academic writing. Um, I realized um, towards the end of my PhD, that this is not to disparage, you know, academia or my academic uh, colleagues in any way, but for me, I realized that the kind of dream that I had gone into studying literature and studying philosophy and uh, art and culture generally, the dream I'd gone into that with was a dream about writing. Um, and maybe we can talk about this uh, as well at, uh, at some point. The kind of influences that, that I was drawing on, the, the ambition, the, the envy that I had for certain kinds of, uh, of writing led me to think that the academy was the place where that was possible. And I realized after many years that the academy was a place where all of that was, was absolutely impossible. And what was lacking, and it's interesting that you've described it in terms of style, what was lacking was precisely a kind of texture in the writing. It's interesting to hear and it's nice to hear that it feels warm or engaging for a reader. For me, the ambition was... Um, I suppose much more that it had a kind of um, I think the, the word texture seems somehow the the word for me um, that was not conceptual but somehow metaphorical. There is this uh, sentence from Roland Barthes that I quoted much later um, in Essayism where he says, or he defines writing as the substitution of metaphor for the concept. And I guess that was already in In the Dark Room, um, kind of the ambition, rather than to speak of um, ideas and concepts, or rather to speak of ideas and concepts through concrete images, mm. I guess. Um, that's uh, that's an, an idea with a long history. You can find, you know, Coleridge say, <laughs> saying that. Um, but I guess specifically with that book, um, I wanted to get 
close to get kind of intimate with the idea as much as intimate with the the thing and if if the if the prose could do that then that was in, that was really thrilling to me you mentioned bart and obviously he um wrote about photography um very in a, in a very seminal way um the book has a section in which as you described at the beginning of our of our conversation in which you scrutinize various family photographs and in one of the later books you say that you'd originally learned to write about books but in order to be able to write about life you trained yourself first to write about photographs so why were they the first subject outside of books that you chose and what and what form did that training take i'd already been interested um in photography via bart and also walter benjamin and i guess that kind of critical or theoretical interest quite suddenly i think it, it is that moment that i described earlier of, of of sitting looking at these family photographs and and simply trying to describe things because i don't have um a training in art um and i don't have or or didn't have uh, a training in the history of photography and, and how to look at photographs there was a moment where I realized, looking at those family snapshots, that there was a real challenge, an interesting and exciting writerly challenge, in just describing what you were looking at. And the same thing, I suppose, happened a few years later when I'd embarked on you know, a, a sort of freelance writer life and started pitching things to, to art magazines. And, and the first things I wrote about were mostly literary or philosophical. And eventually, people said, you know, would you like to write about an exhibition? Would you like to write about a book, a book of photographs, or uh, to, to write about images? And I realized for the second time that the really exciting thing um, was literally to try and describe what's in front of you. And that that was incredibly, that was really arduous. And I had been kind of trained in a, uh, I suppose, kind of intellectual tradition, critical tradition, that saw description as mere description. And I think I said in the, in the latest book, uh, Affinities, that I've always been um, keen when I hear or see that description of something as mere. I, you know, I want, I'm on the side of the mere. You know, <laughs> I, I empathize, I sympathize with the mere. And so I suppose it's, it's first of all that. Um, how do you describe a form? How do you describe a body? How do you describe a thing? And then there's a second layer to that, and I guess we'll come back to this with, uh, with affinities, where the thing itself turns into something else. The thing itself takes you somewhere else, metaphorically, um, or in terms of a, a kind of narrative or, or a kind of journey. Um, so I suppose that that's it, really. And, and um, Photography gave me, once I started writing about art, photography gave me a kind of limited kind of field in which I could work, I suppose. Um, I, I could move about in, in, in the history of that and the culture uh, of it and, and feel relatively safe in a way. It was a few <laughs> years before um, I trusted myself or other people trusted me to start writing about you know, painting, sculpture and so on. And so it expanded. Um, I'd like to move now to, to essayism in which you explore the works and, when appropriate, the lives 
of some of your favorite essayists from Thomas Brown to Georges Perec and Joan Didion. But something else runs alongside. It's an account of surviving severe depression as well. Um, but to begin with the essay form itself, I think you said about being on the side of the mirror. And I think, you know, spending time with your books, I think you have a great love for, for ungainly or awkwardly formed things. If that's true, is that is that part of why you like the essay? Because it's you quote Adorno saying it's it's fragmentary and random. I guess so. I think um, it's partly a kind of attachment to the fragmentary and the random, and an idea that writing didn't or doesn't have to be perfectly formed um, in terms, first of all, of, uh, of a kind of argument. Again, this is a kind of you know moving away from a, a kind of academic writing. Um, so yeah, I think I'm when I think about the essay or or when I first started uh, to imagine the essay as a sort of field in which you could uh, move around, um, I was very drawn to the fragment, uh, to an idea of kind of discontinuity, um, to those moments where um, an essayist takes a sudden digressive leap. You know, you, you think you're hearing about one thing, one story, one argument, and suddenly you're, you're somewhere else. And and that runs through the history of the essay. It's there in, you know, Thomas De Quincey. Um, it, it's there in, in Didion. Um, it, it's kind of essential. The idea that the essay might suddenly stop and start again somewhere else. On the other hand, I'm also drawn to the idea that, and essayism is kind of battling with this struggle, I think, the, the, this tension between these two things. I'm also drawn to the notion that the essay is a kind of fully formed, perfectly polished entity. Um, I like elegance in writing, you know, I, I, I like things that feel uh, achieved and resolved. But more than that, I like writing and art um, that is somehow performing its inability to decide between being polished and being ragged. Mm. That's uh, that's fascinating. We're, we're definitely going to return to that. Um, compared within the dark room, essayism it keeps memoir and criticism more discreet from one another. But several of the memoir sections bear the same title, on consolation. What lay behind that decision, that naming? I guess that goes back to a kind of philosophical history of you know uh, consolation. Um, and uh, the consolations of philosophy, the consolations of art. Um, essayism at the start, when it was first commissioned um, by Jacques at, for Fitzcarraldo, um, was not a personal book at all. Um, it was going to be much more a historical, um, partly polemical uh, defense of the essay, as well as, I suppose, a kind of survey of why again, this is about a decade ago, why the essay seemed to be having a particular kind of resurgence. So in other words, it was going to be a book that felt much more um, rational, I suppose, and kind of determined in, in what it was arguing and what it was uh, describing or narrating. And it was written at a time um, when uh, I was going through quite a difficult time in my personal life, 
um, as you say, it has a relationship with kind of periods of uh, of depression. And um, I slowly realized that it was impossible to write this book about the essay or essayism without writing about my attachment to it, therefore also writing about me. Um, and it seemed suddenly important that I should be present in that book. Um, but also that there was a kind of opportunity to write in a way that was a little different from what happens, as you describe it, in, in, in the darkroom, where it moves more or less, I mean, hopefully, seamlessly, um, between the personal and the conceptual or the artistic and literary uh, elements. Um, but here, the kind of junction, uh, the, 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 the abrupt movement from one to the other actually felt quite important. Um, it felt as if somehow that was staging or, or performing the fact that I was shuttling back and forth in that period between being able to write um, and being absolutely unable to live, you know. Um, and it's extraordinary. Sometimes you find your, yourself um, in, in the most terrible personal circumstances and still turning the stuff out, you know, mm. turning the pages out. Um, and so maybe there's an element in, in that kind of disjunction uh, between the personal uh, sections uh, and the more kind of critical or essayistic sections. Maybe that um, kind of dramatizes uh, that that tension that was happening in, in life at that point. Well, it seems to play on a lot of tensions in your life, albeit the, the sort of the breaking point of them. Because at one point, you talk about your depression as a as a tightening, as shrinkage, quote, the self diminishing to a hard kernel of pure and abandoned presence. Now that kind of puts me in mind of, of sort of the Beckett of the late 60s, early 70s. But also in those word choices, the tightening and the shrinkage and the hard kernel, it also made me think of, of your mother's disease as well. How defined for you is the link between her death and, and your depression? Oh, I think I... Um failed in a way to to write about this in 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 the dark room i kind of allude to it um and in a way failed to write about it in essayism uh, as well that um that they're absolutely or at least in my mind connected that um i had always as a kid and as a as a teenager imagined that i too would would suffer from depression as an adult. And I have had nothing like the experience uh, uh, that my mother had. I've had a few episodes as an adult, um, and but nothing approaching the kind of long-term uh, debilitating um, illness, that mental illness that, that, that my mother had. Um, but they're, they're completely connected. But it's interesting, it's really interesting to, to hear you say that, that, that this might not be quite clear in in the books because in a way uh it's kind of what's hovering behind all of the books uh mm. in a curious fashion um somehow not to have come out and kind of said that is is sort of interesting when you earlier were introducing in the dark room one of the things that i uh thought i might say at that point but maybe it's relevant here is that I do believe that with your first book, you just put everything down that then gives you all the other books, mm. right? Um, and that means that, you know, 
partly it means there are things that are actually in that first book that you need to pursue. Um, there are references, for example, in that book to uh, hypochondria, and my second book was about the history of hypochondria. But there are also elements in your first book um, that are just so vague, so not present, that it takes a long time to realize that actually you need to go back. You need to go back and, uh, and, and uh, mine this material further. Um, and that happens even when you think you're running as far and as fast away from it <laughs> as possible, I think. Um, so maybe there's, a, there's an element of that. And I, I think you know, there's a kind of long-term project um, that I hope will become uh, a book in the coming years um, that's uh, a, a deeper, in some ways less personal, less to do with me, investigation of my family and its relationship not just to mental health but to mental health institu institutions mm. um, and maybe that's related as well um, so yes I think absolutely that is in there but I think it's it also feels like something that I haven't sufficiently explored even though I keep touching on it well interesting that you say a sort of a deeper look into it but less personal how, how is that there is that the sort of necessary stance to take? Well, I suppose because um, there's, if I were to write in the dark room now, I think it would be a much angrier book about Ireland in that period. Mm -hmm. It would be a much more furious book about the kind of emotional dampening um, uh, that the culture at large, and my family is a kind of um, uh, image of that, was was responsible for. Um, and I think it would need to touch on, I suppose that that's one of the things that, that these books haven't quite yet got to, is writing about other people's experience, you know. Um, there were some responses to, to In the Dark Room, to the first book, um, that said, where are his brothers? You know, I have two younger brothers. They approved of the book, thank God. Um, but I think there's there's a challenge um, in terms of how you write about other people that maybe this mode of a kind of critical, kind of memoiristic writing doesn't allow. Mm. Um, and I think for me in the kind of longer term, that might be the ambition or the challenge is actually to break out of this kind of essayistic first-person voice um, and do something, um, place yourself on the side of, you know, the other. Interesting. Um, to return to essayism, you write wonderfully in this book about Virginia Woolf. Quote, you could make a study of particles in Woolf's novels and essays. I think it was with that line, Brian, and the passage that follows that you really got me back in in 2017 this was the first book of yours that that i read you describe her at one point this is wolf as having an infinitesimal imagination a rigorous feeling for what is hardly there at all can you if you'll forgive the pun enlarge on that for me infinitesimal imagination is a slightly unfortunate phrase isn't it it, 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 it implies a um a lack on her part of course what i meant was that her imagination works at this in infinitesimal, almost yes, atomic kind of kind of level. Um, I was um, when I wrote that. Oddly, it was it was a kind of hunch. Um, I I didn't go back to many of the other 
uh, I didn't go back to the novels, for example, and check whether I was right about this quality of a kind of mistiness or fog, um, an interest in particles in Wolf. Um, and recently, I've gone back to uh, some of the essays and some of the fiction and found that, thank God, I was right. <laughs> this is actually a recurring thing in her work, this, this interest in um, atmospheres, I suppose, is, is one way to think about it. But it's also to do with things becoming, what's the word, um, particulate, atomic, dispersed. Um, and it's one of the ways in which she elides the distinction, I think, between consciousness and things. And that seems really important. That kind of blurring between uh, the narrating voice, whether it's Virginia Woolf herself or, or a fictional character, and this sense of the world kind of teeming, seething around that person, around that I. It's wonderful. I mean, the, just the way you get under under the hood of some of the writers, to put it a lot less poetically, is um, is stunning. All the writers in essayism, they're, they're all clearly important to you, or these works that you concentrate on are important to you. But of Roland Barthes, you write, I would have to say that Camera Lucida is the book that made me. And in another of your books, you call him the patron saint of my sentences. What makes him such a such an important writer for you? I discovered Bart when I was um, 15 in the local library. So I'd been reading... His books, not the actual man. His books, not the actual <laughs> man. Um, he, uh, his name had come up in um, music papers in the, in the, the NME, uh, specifically in the writings uh, of Paul Morley and mm. Ian Penman, who now, amazingly, I share a publisher with. And I had followed some of these leads Plenty of people of my, my own age and slightly older and slightly younger had similar uh, experiences. And Bart was, was among them. And I found this collection, image music text, which includes essays on photography, essays on, on film, um, his extraordinary, um, very short essay on music, the grain of the voice. And I could not make head or tail uh, of this book and I forgot about it for a year and I went back when I was 16 and suddenly it made a strange kind of sense. Um, and I think what I was drawn to, there are obvious things here, so partly a kind of um, subversively critical attitude to art, to literature, to culture, to pop culture, etc. That That's kind of obvious. Um, that was intellectually really exciting. The more lasting thing, I think, and I think I already knew this as a 16-year-old, uh, was something about the texture of those sentences um, and the, the way that clauses sat alongside each other in, in, a, in a way that didn't quite make sense, parentheses interrupting the advance of the sentence, um, a kind of movement from concept to thing, to a sort of thinginess of things, you know. Um, Bart is a writer who's, who's always paying attention um, to, to the taste of things, to, to the sound of things, to the texture of things. Um, and that sat kind of uneasily 
with this idea that I'd already kind of gleaned that he was something called a structuralist and something called a semiologist, that, that he was all about bringing a kind of conceptual armature to how you viewed and interpreted the world. But you read him, even in translation, um, you read him and, and you had this completely different experience that was seductive, um, mm. and but but it was spikily seductive, you know, and and I, th I think I said in uh, uh, in essayism maybe elsewhere that a lot of that was to do with um, was to do with punctuation, you know, um, and of course, therefore, I spent many many years uh, as a as a student, and I think even in my last couple of years in in secondary school, trying to write like this, disastrously trying <laughs> trying to write like this. <laughs> yeah, he's a hard uh, a hard act to follow. Um, Talking about Bart's work, you say you admire it and then you correct yourself in the text. No, you love it. In fact, you cast the net wider and you say you love all these essayists whose work you're exploring in the book. Now, it's obviously not done in academic circles to, to throw off your analytical apparatus and profess love for your subject. Why did you want to let the correction stand in that way, sort of visible on the page? I suppose because... Um and this is, I assume, why you asked the question, that I felt a little bit ashamed, you know, uh, that at the same time as wanting to say, let's write or let's think about these writers in a way that is loving or passionate um, and attentive, um, that at the same time, um, I um, suspicious of that. Um, and the suspicion comes from some of those writers as well. You know, let's not pretend that that Bart, for example, is just a kind of sentimental uh, mm. writer. Um, so I guess that that's also one of the things, again, that, that essayism is, is kind of wrestling with is the slippage between um, a critical perspective, not just voice, um, and a more loving perspective. Um, so yeah, that it, it comes from a place of a slight shame um, about being uh, a critical writer who mostly pays a kind of loving or celebratory attention. I haven't always done that, um, but I think like a lot of people, um, and maybe this is something that happens as you as you get more experienced as a critic and older as a human being, um, I write less damningly. <laughs> um, uh, as a reviewer, let's say, um, than than I might have done, you know, uh, ten or fifteen or twenty years ago, um, but I guess that there still remains a, a slight kind of embarrassment, um, and maybe retaining the correction um, in the bit that you've just quoted, rather than simply correcting it, um, is a way of including the embarrassment. Mm. Well, I should say not not to misrepresent you. You do you do sort of say when things don't work in these essays or when the sort of eccentricities of certain writers that said you love some of those eccentricities as well so it's um it's a more it's a more complex picture perhaps than i than i presented but another occasion of of a type of falling in love that you describe in the book was hearing um Sebald on the radio one night i think which makes you pick up the rings of satin and you write I felt for the first time in over a decade that I had found, as Bart liked to say, my writer. And you return to this sensation in your in your book, Suppose a Sentence, and say that it's something that happens rarely, perhaps a dozen times 
in our reading lives if we're lucky. Um, it happens for you with Bart and with Sebald and with Elizabeth Bowen, etc. When it happens, what do you do? Are you someone who then goes on a reading jag and you try to get to everything this this newly discovered writer has written, or do you take a more a more gradual approach? Well, I think with Sebald, um, there wasn't much to read at that point, mm. so. The Rings of Saturn is the second book that's translated in, I think, 98. And that's what I heard uh, lying in bed one night full of Prozac and, uh, and despair um, and listening to, to this voice. I certainly then read everything as it, as it came along. Um, and he would be, I suppose, at that point in my life, one of those writers who you, you did want to kind of feel like you, you had heard everything you had read everything. I think it's a really interesting question because I think it really varies. Sometimes that moment of feeling like here here is a voice that, that somehow touches you, that that you feel like you can kind of inhabit. Sometimes that moment does lead you then to, to feel like you need to exhaust the, uh, the canon of that, that writer's work. Um, you need to know everything. Um, and sometimes I think not quite, you know, um, to the short list that you, you, you just gave, I would add um, Elizabeth Hardwick, for example. And when I first read Hardwick, I came to Hardwick really, really late, um, uh, about 10 years ago. And I read um, her amazing 1976 essay on Billie Holiday. And something about the voice there, the sentences, the weird kind of elision of Billie Holiday's voice in favor of somehow Hardwick inhabiting her voice, um, giving the voice through her own, Hardwick's voice, was just incredibly exciting to me. And at that point, Hardwick hadn't had the kind of like renaissance that she's had in terms of her books being republished and the essays uh, anthologized and, uh, and collected. Um, and I read a few things. I went to the you know New York Review of Books uh, website and read, read some of her essays, but I didn't go terribly far. Mm. But I would say later on, I came back to her, you know, and, and I've probably read everything that's in print now. Um, but that essay and that first reading of that essay um, determined an awful lot um, about what I thought I was doing in essayism. Um, and so I had read this tiny fraction of a writer's work, and it just kind of went to work on mm. me. And there's another piece, that, there's an essay that we, we might get to when we talk about affinities, um, about an aunt of mine, um, that's entirely me trying to replicate something that I thought I was hearing um, in that essay about Billie Holiday. So I guess the answer is that sometimes the the writing goes to work on you by making you, by expanding your reading, by expanding your sense of, of, um, of what you need to know and what that makes possible. And sometimes uh, it's, it's just enough to have heard or read this, this small thing and, it, and this kernel sort of grows in a different way, mm. if that makes sense. A small thing at, at exactly the right time. Um, 
I'd like to talk briefly about the the structure of this book and and your books generally, or certainly the trilogy. They're built from many short or at least discrete sections. They they vary in length quite a bit. But in essayism, you write about that form actually coming out of a kind of anxiety. And in what way? An anxiety, I think, about a few things. What one of which um, is whether I can make an argument, whether I can sustain an argument. Second, whether I can sustain a narrative, say. Um, but also, I think, just a, a, an anxiety about um, about the extent, the, 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 the scope of a piece of writing. I, I suspect that this comes from my non-academic training, which is as a freelance writer. I started out, I think I say this in the uh, in the new book uh, somewhere, I started out uh, once I'd quit academia for the first time, writing tiny book reviews for Time Out magazine, like 300 words, and worked my way up to a point where I could write about a thousand words a day. Um, and I still can write about a thousand words a day. And I, th I think that I think in thousand word <laughs> chunks um and somehow that becomes your thing you know um and if that can if the process if of just repeating that a thousand words at a time can produce let's say an essay of seven or eight thousand words great if it can produce a book even better um and somehow that's that's my modus that that's the way i i work um, that doesn't mean um, that I'm not frustrated by it. Um, and it doesn't mean that sometimes I think actually what I really need to do is is break out of this and and just, you know, plow ahead and see where we get to. I think that there's a couple of things that, that, that I'm thinking about in the coming years that simply won't work um, as books that are made of short, discreet, mm. Uh, mini essays uh, or reflections that just won't suit the subject and won't suit the the, the scale of what I'm I'm trying to do. Um, so I think it's it's partly a kind of habit. Um, it's partly a sort of anxiety uh, about about one's talent and um, and stamina, I guess. Anxiety about talent. That's uh, you're you're truly a writer, Brian. Um, at the at the outset of essayism, when you're discussing the form, you remark in an aside, please don't call it creative nonfiction. I suppose you've won that argument, but only on a technicality, because I think narrative nonfiction seems to be the, the term that, uh, that won out. But I suspect you don't much like that term either. What's your, what's your issue with those terms? I guess that creative nonfiction um, seemed, when I wrote that, like... A term that was coming out of quite a kind of mainstream publishing context and it was also and I think has been adopted by creative writing programs as a, as a kind of shorthand for something that I think is better either described purely as non-fiction if, if we must make that mm -hmm. distinction with fiction um, or God, this is so difficult. Sometimes I simply want to call it the essay. Mm. 
but that in itself can seem restrictive. Um, on on the worst days, uh, I get in such a huff with these terminologies that I simply want to say, can we not just call it writing? Um, but there is something about the kind of the the way that these terms uh, solidify. Personal essay is another one. I have nothing against personal essays, obviously, um, but I think that there's 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 something hampering um, for for a writer about. Um, thinking of these terms as kind of spaces to inhabit, kind of boxes to, mm. to fill, um, expectations to, to be met. Um, and I don't want to overstate my um, slightly huffy dismissal of them, um, but they don't feel all that useful for me, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, I, I understand that. Um, and I share your your huffy dismissal. Um, before we leave essayism, I'm going to quote you uh, one more time. Criticism, and perhaps writing in general, should consist of a sensitive but dauntless search for the most productive or provocative metaphors in the material to hand. And I, you, still think that this is what writing is, still feel that an account of the world that fails to draw from it all its figural potential is therefore incomplete. And then you distinguish between some writing something serviceable, but lacking some or all of that figural potential, and achieving something you describe as writing while writing, a phrase I love. What exactly do you mean by that? Um, writing while writing. Um, I first, I think, came up with that as a notion, as a half-baked uh, description <laughs> of something. Um, when I was interviewing years and years ago, um, the music writer Paul Morley, who I mentioned earlier, um, and I accused him uh, in a bar somewhere uh, with my tape, little tape recorder. I said, the thing about your writing is you're always writing while writing. And, and we spent ages trying to figure out what that <laughs> might mean. And maybe it means nothing, but it's it feels to me like a description, not of just a kind of self-consciousness, you know, kind of pointing to yourself as, as you're writing, but a kind of awareness in the writing of its own texture. I keep coming back to, to that word, its own kind of possibilities, possibilities that are being sort of hinted at, but maybe un unfulfilled in, in that moment. Um, and I guess that's that's what I'm drawn to in, in many writers. The extreme version of it, for me, um, is somebody like William Gass, um, where every sentence is so packed full of images. Um, every paragraph is so stocked with metaphors that it's really hard to see. It's hard to follow the line of thought, the line of argument. And it's deliberate, of course, because the argument, the thought, uh, the narrative is happening in those metaphors. That's the excitement. And Gas is somebody who expresses excitement better than almost any writer I can I can think of, and I guess it's a, it's a sort of version of that. My own writing doesn't go to anything like the the extreme that that his does, but I've always had, and and maybe it it actually kind of goes way back to being a, a student and kind of thinking in like writing kind of undergrad essays. You know, what I really need to do here is is find the big metaphor, the big guiding metaphor that will allow me to say something 
without somehow having to lead my reader logically, take mm -hmm. them by the hand step by step. Instead, I will find the image or the set of images that will connect to each other and will enact the argument instead of having to laboriously uh, describe it. Um, and in a way, that's a kind of fantasy about what writing uh, could or, good or should be. Sometimes I, you know, I put one over on, on people. <laughs> it, it, it worked and frequently it didn't, you know, because, because the, the, the counter argument is to say, um, it's the counter argument that my teachers would make and, and, and you know, some people might, might make of my books now would be to say, this is, all of this is happening, all of this is being enacted at the level of, of a kind of style or uh, uh, metaphoric or, or imagistic kind of surface. Um, where's, the, where's the logic? Where are the logical steps? Um, where's the kind of context? Um, and all I can kind of say to that is, you know, this is what I have trained myself to do because I think it does something. I think it, it, it has a kind of um, set of, or it, or it opens on to a kind of set of possibilities that other kinds of writing do in in their own way mm. so at the end of essayism you describe the essays you most admire as being those that pay the minutest or most sustained attention to one thing one time or place one strain or strand of existence so the progression to your next book supposes a sentence in which each essay explores the structure and meaning and context of a single sentence it seems like a very logical one did the idea occur or evolve while you were writing essayism or did the spark come from from somewhere else um i think it arose just after or possibly towards the end um of essayism um it actually came from my partner who's also a a, a writer um who simply said one day maybe you should write a book about sentences having <laughs> written a book about essays and of course she was she was right um and it immediately made me realize that if I were to write a book about sentences, um, it would not be a work of, or in my mind, it would not be a work of literary criticism. It would not be a kind of how to write a great sentence. There are many really good books on, on exactly that subject. And that somehow it would feel in my head at least, much closer to the exercise of writing about a single object um, or a painting or a photograph than it would to uh, a more literary critical uh, kind of operation or, or exercise. And I've always really, really loved the challenge of writing about a single thing. Um, as, as somebody who writes about art, I really like it when an artist, let's say for a catalogue, says to you, I just want you to write about this one sculpture or this one painting. Um, I very much admire uh, writers who can do that. Um, Wayne Kestenbaum, the great, great poet uh, and critic, um, wrote a series of uh, essays for Cabinet magazine, a uh, magazine of art and culture that I've have been in, involved with for many, many years, where we gave him a photograph, or the editors gave him a photograph um, four times a year, and he had no idea what the image was going to be. 
sometimes we didn't really understand what the image uh, was and Wayne would have to write about it. And of course he came up with, because he's Wayne Kestenbaum, came up with the most extraordinary, exciting, kind of, you know, devious, uh, deviant um, uh, kind of <laughs> responses. And there's something about that challenge um, that I really like. And so part of the challenge for uh, Suppose a Sentence was to write in such a way that it might seem not quite that these things had been given to me at random, um, but that you could write in such a way that you could give your whole attention to each one, you know, w without a kind of overarching sense of like, this is what a sentence should be, or that somehow they would lead one to the other, building a kind of theory of the sentence or an, an argument about um, what a good sentence might be like. That definitely emerges, obviously. I, there, there are tastes um, and uh, prejudices uh, in that book. Um, but I think of it in those terms, um, uh, sitting down in front of an object and, and trying to describe and trying to follow follow its lead. So that was the concept, but your, your approach differed this time. I think you said that this was the first book you'd written without a plan. How, how, how come it panned out that way and how did it feel to write without a plan? Um, it felt it felt pretty good actually because there was no plan but there was a structure because the structure is simply one thing after another <laughs> um, and so I started to amass sentences and some of the early uh, pieces appeared in cabinet magazine there was a, a column that ran for for a few years um, and so the challenge was to find each time a sentence that I felt a kind of attachment to, but that was also a little bit surprising for me. So most, I think it's true to say that most of the sentences in that book are things I had discovered relatively recently. So in the introduction, I say that, you know, I'd, I'd been uh, writing down sentences I really loved or liked for, for years. Um, I still sometimes... Uh, do this in the back of whatever notebook I'm uh, I'm carrying around. The sentences go in the back, and years ago, when I had more time, I would type them up. And so there there are files with like you know scores of the of these things. And I did go back and look through those. And so some of the examples in in the book come from this kind of you know twenty or thirty year long amassing of little quotations. But a lot of them are much more recent because I wanted to kind of keep this this sense that that I was being a little bit surprised, and that I was reading, or that these sentences were by by writers, for example, who I'd only just discovered. Um, so again, I suppose a little bit like essayism, the idea or the hope, rather, was to kind of keep a kind of balance between having a sort of expertise or a sort of control um, about what I was doing, and also just letting the process do its thing, letting it determine itself. Um, one of the things I didn't do until very close to the end was decide on a, an actual structure. Um, and it ended up being chronological, um, just because. <laughs> That's what you do, the chronological guy. Um, you talk about expertise, and I think that, that comes across so strongly in the book. I think it really displays your your abilities as a literary critic and your and your talent for close reading. 
are you habitually a close reader? Do you return to texts again and again and analyse them closely as a matter of course? Or did this project kind of make you up your close reading game? I think I'm, I'm a quite haphazard reader, actually. Um, and yes, of course, there are, there are things that I go back to. Um, I, I was, you know, educated in a, in a, a tradition, a recent tradition of kind of theoretical thinking that disparaged close reading to, to some degree, but actually, in the case of, you know, people like Jacques Derrida and so on, were really, really good close readers. Um, I don't, I don't hope that I don't like venerate the idea of close reading. Um, just as I don't, you know, uh, entirely celebrate the idea of a kind of infinitesimal looking or prolonged looking at works of art. There's a sort of kitsch version of these things, you know, they, it, they, they slip very easily um, into kind of fixed beliefs um, and prejudices against other kinds of, of writing about art or writing about literature or writing about life. Um, there's a way of thinking that says, you know, we need to pay attention to the things themselves um, that I think hardens into a sort of dogma really easily. And that happens a lot in literary criticism, I think. Um, it happens a lot in, uh, perhaps it happens more in a kind of journalistic criticism than it does in academia these days. But these things kind of move back and forth. But there's a way of thinking about writing about writing that says, you know, the great thing about X or Y is that he or she takes us so close to the thing itself. And yes, of course, I want my writing to do that, and especially in, suppose, a sentence. Um, but that's not in itself, it's not a value in itself for me. Um, I want the thing itself to also take me somewhere else. Mm. Um, and so I, I hope that some of the time, at least in, uh, in that book, that's what's happening. Um, and as a critic... Um, of literature or art or whatever, I also know that criticism is partly about distraction. You know, looking closely is, is also about distraction. Attention is also a mode of distraction, right? You're looking at something really closely, but it always takes you somewhere else. Um, and so I don't want to, I don't want to fetishize this, this mode of, uh, of close attention. Well, I don't think you do, and I don't think you're. Um, it sort of brings us back to to your love of the the weird or odd. You know, you're not giving us like the last line of the dead. These are sentences that that kind of when you first look at them, or when I first look at them as a reader, I'm like, oh, what's so special about that? But then you proceed to exactly take us somewhere. I think um, at the end of an essay on Wolf, you, you, there's something you call the dirigible madness of writing. And elsewhere, you spot eccentricities in the work of Eliot and of Ruskin and De Quincey, of Elizabeth Hardwick, your beloved Elizabeth Hardwick, you write, her best pieces start out as book reviews and far exceed the form. Best because most acute, most peculiar, most daring in pursuit of an elegantly weird style. Is all great writing for you, and we can maybe talk about the, the term great writing, but the writing that you love does it have some fundamental oddness within it? Is that part of its greatness? I think that's prob definitely true um, in Suppose a Sentence. And I, I guess it's one of the things 
without having set out to to make this argument, it's one of the things that I end up repeating, I think, is that moment where, as you say, I'm admiring the things that are um, intentional and controlled um, about the writing, and also this element of a kind of eccentricity. It's also, I suppose, an, an element of... Um, of something random, a kind of um, lack of control. Um, somebody wrote recently, I think it was um, Sasha Frere Jones writing about uh, the second collection of um, Hardwick's essays um, about the way in which she seems to lose control um, in in her last decades of a lot of aspects of the the prose. She's willing to lose control of it, um, and. That seems really important. The eccentricity that I'm talking about or admiring um, might sometimes be, you know, a sort of monstrousness that's being cultivated by by a writer. But sometimes there, are, you know, lapses, and and the lapses seem important. Um, with a writer like George Eliot, in the the sentence that 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 I quote is is from Middlemarch. And middle, in a book like Middlemarch, so vast, so controlled, but also sprawling, you do have to wonder, um, is George Eliot a writer who's thinking hard about this sentence that I've just picked out? Mm. Quite possibly not. Um, the same, I think, is true of, uh, of others of the 19th century writers. Um, there's a sense in great Victorian prose um, especially people who write an awful lot, you know, like like Ruskin, and Ruskin is in the book as well, um, that what we think of as these, you know, kind of great stately sort of rolling periods uh, in their prose um, are actually a bit haphazard, a bit random, a bit clunky, um, and, and quite possibly often written really quickly, you know. <laughs> they're, they're not quite as controlled or as elegant as, as you might want to, to believe. And so I think that's part of it, is that a, a realization or a recognition that in any kind uh, of writing, perhaps in any, in any art, maybe this, this is, applies in affinities as well to, to photographs, there is this element that is purely kind of contingent and, and uncontrollable. Uh, so yes, it's a kind of eccentricity and a sort of monstrosity and a sort of excess. Um, maybe it's not deliberately so and in some cases maybe it is well despite that that haphazardous maybe ruskin was more of a five thousand words a day man um nevertheless you know you focus on e extraordinary essays these distinctive and and fascinating sentences and you set yourself a daunting task in doing so or so it seems to me you know your prose needs to be strong enough to hold its own amid them and that it does i think is proven time and time again in these books but was that is that ever a concern as you work on a project i think if your project includes um shakespeare george Eliot, <laughs> uh thomas de quincey uh elizabeth hardwick and so on then yeah it's a it's obviously yeah, um, it's it's an anxiety isn't it um the answer to that anxiety is is not or I hope it is not to try and uh, write in such a way that you can compete uh, on the page with with your subject, but for me is to write in such a way that that somehow you're you feel close to the 
subject. I don't know. Um, I remember writing the the Hardwick one, and also maybe the uh, the essay on Hilary Mantel, and feeling as if not that I was getting into a mode where I could write like either of them, but but that I was in almost a sort of weirdly hallucinatory kind of state, um, not kind of you know not rationally critical or theoretical or analytical, but but somehow in uh, to use a word that comes back in uh, in affinities, I kind of got into a weird mood, a weird kind of state of mind writing these. Maybe it sounds excessive in thinking about or just trying to describe um, a kind of literary criticism that you get into a, um, a state of mind where you're not quite in control of, of what you're doing. Um, and you're, you're able to make sort of leaps or to, uh, to come up with images or word choices that don't seem rational. Um, I'm only thinking through this now, you know, in answer to, to, to your question, but the, there's an element of um, a slight kind of delirium, I suppose, mm. you know. And if, if you're trying to write about something as extraordinary as a sentence by Hilary Mantel, um, you can't compete. So what what is left to you? It's something about, I suppose, being under the spell and allowing yourself to be under the spell uh, of the thing. Um, that then allows some kind of writing to to come out. And were there any sentences that that you were either too intimidated to include or or that just sort of locked you out that you thought I'm going to write about this sentence but in fact when you when you engaged with it you found you you couldn't for any reason. Um I think I say in the introduction that uh, there is n- nothing by Proust uh in the book. Um and uh I'd always imagined that there would be. Mm. And I'm kind of unsure why there isn't, um, because there were many sentences that I wrote down and and thought that should be there, that's the one, um, and somehow never found the right thing. And maybe I was intimidated by uh, the complexity of dealing with um, the different iterations of you know translation of Proust, my French not being good enough, to judge translations or to describe even the, uh, the the precise distinctions between translations, um, maybe there was just something about the obviousness of having Proust in there. But then some of my other choices are are obvious. Um, in the end, I kind of let myself uh, off the hook a little bit, um, and realized that there were certain great writers and great examples that I just wasn't going to to mm. um and so in a way i think of the book as uh, a kind of slice through my relationship with with sentences um it's a book that logically should never really end right <laughs> um it's it's just a fragment of a kind of life's project yes um and you know the there could it could have been five times longer or it could have been the start of, you know, but why would anybody want to read uh, the, the multi-volume version of it? But the multi-volume version of it that just never stopped responding to single sentences mm. is logically what should have happened, in a way. <laughs> it could be the Fast and Furious of, uh, of Fitzcarraldo. Um, you write about the, the porous border between 
observation and imagination in the work of John Ruskin. And that made me wonder if you've thought about the position of that border in your own work and if you have or have ever had any desire to push across it into the imaginary, into the fictional. I have written a very modest and small amount of fiction. Uh, so many years ago, I had um, a research fellowship um, on the subject of modern ruins. I had decided that I was going to stop writing about myself and writing about bodies and, uh, you know, um, the family history, etc. And I was going to write about places. And this project eventually became four books and uh, an exhibition at uh, Tate Britain called Ruin Lust. And I kind of imagined that it was taking me out into the world um, and away from all of my usual, uh, you know, obsessions and uh, and interests. And of course, it did, and it was a, it was a, an amazing period, productive period, I guess. Um, about halfway through, it was a kind of three-year uh, project. Um, I realised that I had sufficient time and funds because it was it was relative lavishly funded um, to write some fiction and and so I wrote this thing that is called Sanctuary um, and it was published by a small art publisher in 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 Berlin um, that's a story about a character a woman who uh, whose partner has disappeared who was last seen in. Um, in the ruins uh, of a Catholic seminary near Glasgow. Um, and it was the most arduous task that I have ever, as a writer, done. And I don't know why people do it. I, can't, <laughs> I don't understand. Um, the thing about it is that it isn't, in fact. So it's the one piece of fiction that, the, the, that I've published. Um, but the interesting thing about it is that it doesn't feel to me, I'm glad, very glad I did it, but it doesn't feel to me like it's doing the thing that you've just asked about, which is the kind of moment where um, my interest in a particular kind of um, relationship between um, reason and imagination, let, let's say, mm. where that gets pushed at at all. Um, it feels now to me like a work that's that's far too kind of controlled and, uh, and limited. Um, but... I now wonder what that, what the other version, the more adventurous, the slightly more open version mm. of pushing at that border would be like. Um, I'm I'm quite unsure. Um, it's it's something that hovers around. Maybe it hovers around in the in the back of of uh, a lot of essayists' minds. Is what would happen if I just turned this into fiction? Um, so it's yeah. I think it's an it's an open question still. <laughs> Perhaps a blue jacket awaits in your future. Um, I'd like to turn now to your latest book, Affinities, where you complete the trilogy and in a sense, you know, reach back to those photographs you studied in, in the dark room by turning your focus in this book on, onto images. I'm conscious we haven't yet heard an example of your writing other than the chunks that I've been quoting at you. Could you read us a passage from the new Of book? course. So I'm just going to read from uh, the opening couple of pages of Affinities. I found myself frequently using the word affinity and wondering what I meant by it. An attraction, for sure, to certain works of art or literature, to fragments or details, moods or atmospheres inside of them. 
to a sentence, for instance, or an essay, but just as easily to an impression diffusing in the mind that could not be traced back to source. A fascination with this or that artist, writer, musician, filmmaker, designer, with a body or a body of work. Fascination, already finding words with which affinity has affinities, as something like but unlike critical interest, which has its own excitements, but remains too often at the level of knowledge, analysis, conclusions, at worst, the total boredom of having opinions. But also, the way things, images and ideas sidled up to each other seemed to seduce one another in ways I could not or did not want to explain. So that when I wrote affinity in a piece of critical prose, perhaps I was trying to point elsewhere to a realm of the unthought, unthinkable, something unkillable by attitudes or arguments. Not a question of beauty or quality or taste, other eternal aesthetic values, something fleeting in fact, affinities don't all or always last. In the end, and for reasons above as well as others to come, something a little bit stupid. I'd been writing about images for about 20 years, finding affinities rather than deploying any kind of expertise, because I'm no art historian. Still, it had felt like an education, a second training in the image after my first in the word. For a long time, I'd been saying or writing affinity, but also dreaming, never exactly conceiving, a way of thinking about art, about objects and images that belonged to artists, including the contemporary artists whose studios I might visit and find myself staring at pictures, not their own, they had stuck to the wall, books and artefacts on their shelves. I had thought in passing about how these or the smartphone photographs and notes app reading lists the artists sent me afterwards, how they sat alongside each other in more or less oblique relations, and then, when I came to write up my encounter with the work, wouldn't easily translate into the language of influence, subject matter, or research. Wouldn't do so, that is, if the art was of any worth. Sometimes everything explained itself too well. How to describe as a writer the relationship it seemed the artists had with their chosen and not chosen, what's the word? Talismans? Tastes? Sympathies? Familiars? Superstitions? Affinities? Brian Dillon, reading from his new book, Affinities. So Brian, an interesting conundrum is laid out in the book's opening pages. You want to explore your affinity for certain visual works of art. That's where the project begins. But before you can properly begin, you find that you need to understand what the word affinity means to you. And that's a quest that runs through the book. Why is it such a a tricky word to, to pin down the precise meaning of? I think it's it's tricky partly because of the history of, of the word and and you know this this is easy enough to for anybody to to glean a lot of my uh, initial so-called research was just like you know staring at the OED um, <laughs> and and in in a kind of wonder about how this word that I had been using for for a long time it's it's in essayism uh, it's in suppose a sentence um, that this word had such a vague and contradictory etymology uh, historically, affinity, the, the main thing that struck me was that historically affinity described um, relations of blood, familial relations. 
So there's something, in other words, kind of organic or natural about uh, an affinity. And that's one of the ways that I guess we, we still use the word. And on the other hand, it meant historically, and still to some degree does, uh, something that's kind of much more ordered or ritualized. So when we say, um, you know, to, to, to speak of people or things as affianced, to, to say that one has a fiancé, you know, these are all related words. Affinity, in other words, is something almost official or legal. And that kind of hovered in my mind, or, or it, can, it, I guess it, uh, it affirmed something in my mind um, that had seemed to be there in how I was using the word before. And I suppose I was using the word because it had come up in kind of conversations with, with other artists and writers but it seemed to me to describe a relationship with images and objects and writing that many artists I know um, have or have had, where they're, the way they think about these things and the image of you know uh, postcards on the artist's wall, seem, studio wall, seems, seems to me the best image of this. They're not direct influences. You know, they're... they're um, moments in time or objects in space or images that kind of hover around somebody's thinking or the process of of making um and so the book has this kind of running thread a little bit like essayism i suppose with the the recurring on consolation pieces affinities has this uh essay that kind of s surfaces and then disappears again um 10 of these pieces that run through the book that start out trying to define it. So, you know, that, that etymological history, um, uh, as well as a kind of scientific history, is part of that. But I think it gets more diffuse as, a, uh, as it goes along. And probably I start to use the term, or I recognize that the term is meaning something for me, um, some, something specific for me, looking at uh, artists and looking at images. Um, but it seemed important to, to just recognize initially uh, that this term has uh, a kind of contradiction built into it. Mm, and those contradictions play out over the course of the book. We'll, we'll definitely come back to some of those. We've talked about your training in looking at photographs and photography is the most represented discipline in affinities. You write something intriguing about, about studying them near the start of the book. Quote, the challenge always to try and render the obtuseness of the image with some, but not too much, acuity. Now, I, I think acuity is one of your, your great talents. So, so why not too much of it? Why not too much of it? Be because, again, just as with the essay book and the sentence book, this idea, I mean, in a way, it's a kind of banality, isn't it? You know, that, that there's something left over, you know, that... that um, in the way that we read as you know, knowledgeable or critical individuals, the way that we read or the way that we look um, can't exhaust the thing itself, that there's, there's something obtuse or a little bit stupid, uh, as I say in, in the introduction, uh, left over. There's a sort of remainder. And I guess, the again, the challenge for me in, in writing about art and writing about images is no matter what I'm bringing in terms of a kind of expertise and I don't have the education but I have in a way the training I've been writing about this stuff for for a couple of decades now 
no matter how much knowledge or, you know, whatever little bits of acuity might be there, um, I'm trying to write in a way that acknowledges what we can't quite explain, um, what somehow exceeds our reading. Um, and that seems, again, just as with the sentences, that seems just as important with looking at a photograph. Mm. You admit to having had trouble in deciding how to, to order the book. You wanted, you say, to obviate too strong a sense of story. Why, why is that the case? Because it's not a book about the history. It's not a book about the history of art mm. or the history of photography, though those are completely relevant. But it's also not a book about um, the, the history or the evolution of forms. You know, one of the things that I'm paying attention to um, is uh, an almost kind of abstract quality in, in photography and film where you're staring at something that, that is recognizable but is kind of morphing or uh, translating itself into something a little bit monstrous or unrecognizable. But what I'm not saying is we start, you know, with Robert Hooke in the 17th century with, with an image, uh, a close-up of a full stop on the page, which of course turns out to be a kind of ragged, strange entity, that we start there and we end, you know, with, with the, the photography of Rinko Kawauchi. Um, I'm not saying there's an evolution, there's a, a history here uh, of how artists and photographers have thought about, have tried to capture certain kinds of uh, abstract visual entities, let's say, in, in photography. Um, there are art historical versions of, um, of that sort of argument that try and track forms across history. It's, um, it's sort of a disreputable thing to do in, in art history. Um, but it's also, I mean, this, this is, I say this, but, but there's almost a kind of contradiction built in here because I am looking at things across history, across several centuries. And I do seem to be saying um, these things have something in common. Um, but what I'm not arguing is these things kind of lead one to another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not a stepwise progression. That Robert Hooke um, engraving of the magnified full stop, first of all, it's excellent to begin a book with a full stop. That's just a, a great move. Um, and again, as you said, it, it's this ragged thing. It looks kind of like a Ferrero Rocher. It's kind of pocked and, and, um, and divoted. So does your visual taste, like your taste in prose, kind of lean towards the the beautiful or fascinating imperfection rather than than something sleek and very mannered i think i like the sleek and very mannered um to to a large degree um in a way i i slightly surprised myself um in this book by how many of the rather elegant and and achieved and kind of resolved images included then and then i had to write about them included elements that were somehow uh, ragged and monstrous and somehow out of control. So, again, this is probably a bit of a, an anxiety on my part, and maybe it's the anxiety of somebody coming to art with a literary training or, or education, is that you feel um, 
or I feel kind of nervous that what I'm drawn to might be work that is a little bit too controlled. Um, and that maybe is, is also kind of running through this book. Um, but somehow within the frame of that controlled object, um, there is this other thing going on. Um, I'm trying to think of good examples of this now, but maybe it's kind of always built in. You know, I, I looked at the photograph, for example, by Francesca Woodman, one of her first photographs taken when she was 13, has kind of all the elements of um, of her mature work, of making a kind of mysterious, adolescent, almost kind of gothic persona for herself in the image. But extending into the foreground is her hand and the cable release to take the photograph that turns it into something completely different. Mm. Um, and so I suppose, again, just, just as with the, the, the sentence and essay books, there is actually a sort of hovering or wavering between um, a kind of control and a kind of elegance. And elegance sometimes means in photography a, not just the elegance of a particular image, but a kind of conceptual uh, program or project that's being enacted through one image after another or the, the montage of images or, or the... Uh, the grid of images, that alongside that level of control, that there's also this other element of, of something random happening. Mm. And interesting with the Woodman, again, it's that idea of the, the first work containing the seeds of, of the later work to come. I want to come back to that, that key word, affinity. So in one of 10 essays on affinity placed throughout the book, you write, perhaps it is not easy to distinguish such an affinity from a mob herd or crowd, but I want to assert its difference. I want to travel with an affinity that is discreet, diverse, loosely convened, but moving with purpose. I want each book I write to be an affinity of sorts, and within it, each essay or fragment in turn, an affinity of ideas, images, moods, and citations. It is not enough to want this, you have to perform it. And one of the perils of writing is that I may only describe my affinity and fail to embody it. I think that's a fantastic passage. But what I really want to ask is, what does it mean exactly to you to, to embody an affinity? I suppose it has something to do with the moment when you're writing about the thing itself, whether that thing is a place or a person or a book, uh, an object or an image where all the thoughts you've had about it, all the reflections you've done, all the notes you've made, all the things that get you to the point of being able to, to write in the first place, um, stop being enough. Um, they, they stop being sufficient. And something in... I described it a couple of times earlier as, as texture, but maybe it's not just texture. Or maybe what I mean by texture is also something to do with sound. Like I mean something to do with a kind of, you know, mellifluous or, or elegant <laughs> prose. There's something about the moment where the sound of what you're writing somehow takes over from everything you thought you meant. Um, and great writing about art, to me, um, somehow performs this like translation 
it's 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 the moment where we talked earlier about or I quoted Barth talking about you know when concepts become metaphors that that's one beautiful ambition to have on further than that is the idea or somehow more extreme than that is the idea that the sound of what you're writing could somehow perform the argument or the description that you're trying to make and and maybe that's why i say or kind of uh, hint that you know that this might be for me <laughs> might be completely impossible um i can think of writers uh, for whom it that's just what they do you know and i've mentioned a couple of them already william gas wayne kestenbaum um where there's something happening sonically um that's doing so much of the work um very easy to describe that as a kind of poetry in in prose um and it has a relationship with with poetry but it's something i think a bit more than that um and i suppose that that's what i'm i'm trying to to describe there how could you let go of the analytical and logical aspects of writing sufficiently that the sound of what you're doing expresses that attachment or connection for you a sort of a sort of conduit if you like for the work to the reader i guess so it, which makes it sound again you know like a, a kind of romantic sort of uh, <laughs> project um that you you become it it sounds absurd doesn't it when when you push it the, the, this far um that you're becoming somehow a kind of conduit for as you say for for the work the work is working not through you but the work the work is working through the language that you're making um when i describe it in the in those terms i'm i'm also kind of really suspicious of it <laughs> you know um but maybe this is what it feels like um it may not sound like that uh to a reader of my work um but somehow that that's the kind of experience of writing it mm. when when it when it works well some of these images are also a, a conduit into your past as with um george airy's illustration from 1870 of of shapes associated with what would later be called um, migraine so this is a powerful but but unpleasant affinity affinity isn't just a question of of liking something is it it's more complicated than that i guess so i the, the thing about the hubert airy image from 1870 hubert the, sorry this uh extraordinary kind of jagged colorful um, abstract image. He he describes it amazingly as a photograph of a migraine aura. Of course, it's not a photograph in a, in any real sense. Um, it's a kind of fantasy of how would how it might be possible to photograph imagination in a in a sense. I guess affinity meant in that context um, something that just felt immediately recognizable mm. um, and repellent at the same time, um, but something that uh that i it suddenly just like conjured this moment when i mean i i have only very fleetingly suffered from migraines uh, in my life uh when i was a teenager and then later in my 20s and again a few years later but it's not like something that has like blighted my my life in the way that it certainly does for some people um but it brought me right back to to that moment see, seeing that image um there's a long history of trying to picture what um people with with migraines see in their visual field um but aries is 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 the first um really acute and, and precise uh rendering of that 
And I guess what I was interested in there was, um, on the one hand, that it's completely recognizable for me, um, as it would be for, for anybody else who's had the same experience. And on the other hand, that he's picturing a kind of impossible and inhuman kind of entity, this, mm. this thing, this image that isn't an image. Well, alongside Hubert Airy, who I'd, who I'd not heard of before, Hubert, not George, apologies to his memory and descendants. One of the fascinating characters I met in this book is the photographer and filmmaker Jean Panlevé, a name that was entirely new to me. Again, um, listeners can shake their heads at my ignorance, possibly my pronunciation as well. I wanted to mention him because he's so exemplary of the kind of the spider web or mosaic pattern of, of influence. He knew um, Sergei Eisenstein and Bunuel. He worked on Jean, Jean Vigo's film Atalant. He knew Edgar Varese and Georges Bataille. And you write, the pileup of names is important because Panlevé seems to have learned from all of them. And it made me think, you know, reading this book, it made me think that visual artists make many more of these connections, it seems to me, really influential and consequential connections than prose writers do. Do you think that's the case? I think it's a very interesting question, partly because I think that artists think differently about influence. Um, and maybe that has something to do with uh, collaboration. So Panleve, who doesn't really think of himself as a, a fine artist, He's a filmmaker. He's partly a very um, popular filmmaker, comparable to a figure like like Jacques Cousteau, for for example. Um, but he's also part of or related to the avant-garde, and he draws on aspects of cinema. He draws on aspects of surrealist art um, to make this work that just kind of bristles with connections to to so much in the in the twentieth century. And maybe one of the things that I'm trying to think through in Affinities is, but certainly not kind of performing myself, not successfully, is what would it mean to be a writer who thinks in the way that artists in mm. think in this kind of omnivorous attitude um, to influence? And I suppose it's one of the reasons that as a writer, I really embraced writing about contemporary art um, you know 20 years ago is because the art world for all its flaws which are parallel with the flaws of the the literary world um, seemed like a place where people artists curators critics were really energetically interested in so much obscure and popular culture in, in ways that seemed quite different or then seemed quite different to the way that um, uh, that writers thought. Um, I think that artists feel quite rightly, it doesn't always make for uh, good uses of, uh, of writing, but artists feel like they can draw on literature, on the history of literature, in a completely, you know, as I say, omnivorous way without feeling certain kinds of responsibility that, mm. the, that the rest of us might, and that they feel similarly about cinema, that they feel the same about dance, for example. Um, and it's that image, to go back to it, you know, of the, the studio wall, um, 
where it's completely heterogeneous. You can draw from different periods historically. You can draw from different art forms. Um, and that seems really important to me. And maybe one of the things that I've been trying to kind of think through and to kind of wrestle with for years is what would it be like to be a writer who has that um, that sort of attitude to their sources and has that kind of attitude to written sources, to literature, just as much as, say, to objects or images? Mm. You kind of maybe want to be a visual artist now. I think I've chosen the wrong career path. You've ordered your affinities chronologically, as we've discussed, but you proclaim something in one essay that elevates this particular work, this particular film, above all others, of Andy Warhol's inner and outer space. You say, it's cruel as well as painful, and yet, if I were pushed to say what is my favourite work of art, at least some of the time, I would have to name this film. Can you describe the film and say say why you value it so highly? So, Outer and Inner Space um, is a film a uh, 16mm film on two screens. But it's also one of Warhol's first experiments with video because what you see on screen um, is Edie Sedgwick, uh, you know, the, the, the first great Warhol superstar, um, alongside a video image of her own face. Um, and so you're seeing four Edies and you're seeing somebody, uh, she's speaking, um, there's a soundtrack, but you can only very rarely hear what she's saying. So you're forced to pay incredibly close attention to her facial expressions. And she's very um, animated uh, for a lot of it. Uh, she's like grinning and she's obviously cracking jokes with Warhol, who's, who's behind the camera. Um, and sometimes she looks and seems and feels kind of lost in front of her own image. She'll occasionally turn around and look at the video image, which breaks up at various points, um, becomes kind of abstract. And she looks for a moment like she's a little bit freaked out by this. So what I think I love in that work is, is that you're seeing um, in the context of, you know, there are many works by Warhol uh, that Edie Sedgwick appears in. Um, she's, you know, stereotypically this uh, supposedly kind of tragic uh, figure um, and obviously extraordinarily beautiful um, and part of that like factory milieu in that's been like you know uh, that's exhausted in terms of like stories about her relationship with uh, with Warhol and so on but the thing the specific thing that really grabbed me when I first saw that work um, in uh, I think around 2001 in a uh, a Warhol show at Tate Modern, shortly after Tate Modern had opened, was that what you're seeing is a person thinking. Mm. And you're seeing four versions of this person thinking. Um, and sometimes, this is why I say, you know, some, sometimes this is my favorite work of art. I, I can think of, sometimes I can think of no work that better kind of stages this relationship between kind of absolutely pure image and the texture of an image on screen. Um, and this view of just human thought, just like the the precision of her, of, of her thinking expressed in that face. It's kind of extraordinary. I wanted to bring us um, full circle, or perhaps to complete another of the, the many loops that run through your work. In one of the Affinities essays, your mother returns. 
Um, you say, one day I will stop writing about this, rehearsing the bare facts for anyone who will listen, attaching her life and her death to half the things I have to say about books and music and art. And then there's this remarkable sentence. To write means to find reasons to tell you about my mother, about my ordinary orphanhood and ordinary grief. Now you say normal there, but from the from the inside looking out, your your mother's death is a defining, perhaps the defining event in your in your life, isn't it? It seems to well, I suppose yeah, the answer must must be yes in a way, mustn't it? Because um, it's something that uh, I keep coming back to, um, and kind of running away from. And I suppose this is true for many writers. There are these cliches, you know, there are various versions of this and various attributions that, you know, everything that you have as a writer, you've already got by the time you're whatever, 18, 21, 23, the different versions of this saying, I think uh, have different said ages. Six or something. Six, well, <laughs> um, and so it partly it's a version of that, which is just a kind of banal fact about being a writer, is that um, certain things are fixed and uh, certain things define you. And, and, and if you have the good fortune as an artist or a writer to be able to express something, um, that's going to be a defining thing. That's going to be something that is um, probably endless, something you're not going to be able to exhaust in a career or, or, or a, a writing life. Um, the particularity of that is, um, I suppose, that I started out writing about images of that portion of my life. And as you say, I've kind of come back to it uh, in affinities. And I suppose now realize that, and we touched on this earlier, that there are elements of that story of, of her life that I've never touched on, never written about. So maybe in, in the current book, I'm sort of reminding myself a little bit that there's more to come, um, that there's something unfinished here. Um, there's also, I suppose, a kind of element with that of, you know, as, as a writer, the more you write, the more you have lived your life as a writer, <laughs> mm. you see what I mean? Um, and when you start getting to a stage where you've lived kind of almost half your life uh, as a writer, um, it becomes a little bit hard to see how you might write about the portion in which you've been a writer, if that <laughs> makes sense. This is true, I think, for, for lots of people that uh, also simply because, you know, people are alive and, and you don't necessarily want to uh, to write about your life now. There, there's something, although, you know, it's difficult and dangerous and, and adventurous to write, to carry on mining the same material, um, it's also a little bit of a retreat um, mm. in a sense. But maybe a lot of writers have that sense of um, something corralled, something slightly fenced off, a territory in which they're capable of moving. And if you're fortunate, that territory connects to things in the present, connects to things in uh, your life now or in the culture around you. 
that you're able to connect, mm. if that makes some some sense. Um, but it remains a kind of odd contradiction for me that you, I want to be a writer who's kind of engaged with the world, but I keep telling the same story in a sense. But maybe that's ordinary. Maybe that, maybe that's not unusual at all. Well, those those passages I quoted come from an essay about a photograph showing a congregation of charismatics in at a, at a service in Dublin. And deeper into the essay, and this maybe plays into what you said about in the dark room, if you wrote it now, it would be an, it would be an angrier book because you sort of attack the image. I think Catholicism inspires an anger in you throughout your books. Can affinity be a violent thing too? Are there, are there certain affinities that you'd, you'd rather reject if, if that was a possibility? I think some of what I'm describing, um, and there there are a couple of more personal essays uh, in Affinities, um, and some of what I'm describing there is an element that is inescapable. So alongside the essay about, uh, which is partly about my mother, and it's partly about a photograph, as you say, of a charismatic prayer meeting, which doesn't include my mother, um, Alongside that, there's an essay about an aunt of mine um, who lived a very restricted life, certainly in, in middle age, where she had a kind of dispute with her next door neighbors that involved her photographing obsessively and relentlessly uh, the borders, the boundaries of, of uh, her property. And I inherited or found uh, scores of these photographs and eventually found a kind of way of, of writing about them. And I guess the, the affinity there, which I certainly at some level badly want to resist, is that what I'm seeing is a kind of version of myself, you know, mm. um, a person who is obsessively looking closely. And I think I say this at the end of the, uh, the essay, um, and maybe I'm a little bit harsh on her in, uh, uh, in this essay in, in other ways, but by the end, I realize that she's just like me. She's uh, endlessly, repeatedly paying attention to small things. And in her case, of course, she has no way out of that. She has no way of framing that self-consciously or making it into something. But one of the kind of horrible ironies of her, of her story um, is that she produced a kind of body of work, you know, of these, of these images that are, are, are left over. She also, she had, you know, CCTV cameras trained on her front and back gardens, but no recorders. So she must have been looking at this stuff live. Um, and so that seems like a, you mentioned Beckett earlier, that seems like an uh, almost kind of Beckettian, mm. kind of horrific kind of image of, of what, um, a life of very close looking might entail if you don't have the outlet, if you don't have the possibility of turning that into something in the world. Yes, and in, the, and, and in that extraordinary section of the book, you describe that sort of, um, her attention sort of shrinking, growing inside the house and then to, to, to her living room and smaller and smaller objects. Um, at the end of the book, you include a long list, long but partial um, in your description, of images that didn't make the cut, but which are burned in your mind. What were the criteria for an image making it in? I think it worked a little bit like the sentence book, um, that 
I was drawing on things that had been kind of hanging around in my mind for, for many years. And I was also leaving uh, things open enough that I would be a little bit surprised. Mm. This is also a book, unlike um, Essayism and Suppose a Sentence, that, that relies a bit more on, a lot more, I think, on um, essays that I was publishing elsewhere. And I, I realized that actually that was okay in this case. It's a little bit more of an essay collection um, because it's also a record of where my attention was over a particular period. Um, so the list at the end is almost like um, that's me escaping the, the limitations of the book. This, this is the book that uh, I have a slight shame about not writing you know um because that list i wrote really quickly um i sat down in a cafe one morning and just made that list and suddenly realized that it was um it was the final section of mm. the book um and so when you were writing it what was your intention for it if you didn't know when i was writing you? the the list um it's very hard to say um mm. i thought it might go somewhere in the book um that at some point I would say, of course, this book could go elsewhere and there would be these other things. Um, but then I suddenly realized, as I say, that it should be at the end because it's it's the thing that that makes, no matter what the intentions or the intensity of the, the looking in the earlier parts of the book, it's the thing that makes it obvious that it is also a kind of random collection, a kind of contingent collection. Um, and I do feel a slight shame in a way that i didn't write <laughs> the book that's based on the uh, on the really hastily constructed list um so it kind of shadows the whole thing it's a you know, you know the ghost version of affinity at the end <laughs> i'd really like to talk in the time we have remaining about the trilogy as a whole but i say trilogy could it actually be you know we talked about in the dark room containing these these seeds for the later work could be a could it be a tetralogy or should is should in the dark room properly be thought of to your mind as as a very distinct work i think um when i was writing affinities i started to talk um uh, about jokingly um because there, there is something uh, pompous about uh, claiming that you're writing or have written a, a a trilogy um i started to talk about it nonetheless as a as a trilogy of sorts um now that it's out, I maybe uh, I'm realizing that, and this is partly a reassuring and I think probably uh, a slightly dismaying thing to realize as, as a writer, is that you are always and only yourself, you know, <laughs> that the, the writer you were in your first book is, no matter how much you might think, God, I've got better since then, you, you're also that person, you're also that, that writer. Um, and so, yes, I think that these three books kind of cohere in a way because they are specifically about cultural products. You know, they're about essays, they're about books, they're about writers, they're about works of art. Um, and In the Dark Room is doing something different. But yes, of course, they they connect to each other. Um, and I'm also partly thinking that, that uh, it's not quite a trilogy, um, because I realized that the next book that I want to write, the next book I am writing, which is a, a Fitzcarraldo book, 
is about education um, and the idea of uh, an education in art or literature, what that has meant for me um, and what it might mean for others now um, at a moment when the very notion uh, of an aesthetic education is something that um, obviously is, is under concerted attack um, at the moment. So I think, yes, it's a, it's a trilogy of, of sorts, but it bleeds out into everything else. Infinitely expandable, potentially. Um, so in the dark room and essayism both emerged following periods of, of depression, of, of quite severe sounding depression. Um, and you discuss those episodes in the book. In fact, at one point in essayism, you describe writing as a way of distracting yourself from the urge to end your life. Does writing still in any way perform that, that function for you, or is that, to your mind, in, in the past too? Um, it's interesting. I think, uh, I think the last two books, um, this is partly some of this is like banal stuff. It's just about, you know, life being <laughs> a little more cheerful and happy, you know. Um, but uh, I think that the last two books I've written, I think I really say this explicitly in, in Suppose a Sentence, I wanted to write a book that was only about good things, you know. Mm. Um, and, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about um, the kinds of experiences that might be lying behind these books, and we've touched on some writers who maybe have uh, a more melancholic um, cast to their personality or the stories they tell or the prose that they write. But the other thing that I think is a kind of through line, um, not just through the trilogy, but probably a lot of my writing, is actually to do with pleasure um, uh, and is, is to do with, and we did talk about this earlier, is to do with loving things. <laughs> Um, and wanting to be kind of celebratory. And so I, I do think that there's an element of um, a kind of, or at least in my mind, uh, a kind of lightness about uh, affinities and suppose a sentence that maybe isn't there in, in some of the other books. Mm. Um, and that seems just as important. Um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's visible I don't know if other people can hear it, in, it in, in the way that, that I experience it. Um, but that, that seems important. Well, apologies for dragging you from lightness back to, back to depression just, just for one more moment. But you say, um, you talked about melancholy, and while you're discussing Burton's anatomy of melancholy, you write that, that you were at that time proud of your diagnosis was there a kind of romance to it in your mind even as it was terrible to experience um i think at, the, at that point i'm describing um a moment in the 1990s i've written mm. about this uh, elsewhere there's an essay i wrote for granta a few years ago about that particular cultural moment um that you know we think of now i suppose as the prozac moment mm -hmm only because uh, there was so much visibility in the media about a particular drug. Um, but there was this moment uh, that I think I 
recognized suddenly that I said earlier, you know, that I'd always imagined I would be depressed just like my mother. But I think by that point, um, I had, that thought had kind of vanished, or that feeling had vanished. And in the midst of kind of, you know, horror, I suddenly latched onto this other thing, which was that cultural moment where you felt as though, um, despite the fact that you knew this was kind of nonsense, you felt as though being a person in your 20s taking Prozac meant somehow that you were part of something, mm. you know. Um, and even if that just meant, you know, you were reading Elizabeth Wurzel like everybody else um, in like, you know, 96 or 97 or so, um, that that was, it's interesting to think about it now because it feels partly generational mm. um, and like a moment when there was an awful lot of uh, talk about depression, um, not so much about other mental illnesses. Um, and it, so that felt slightly kind of liberating, but it was also quite restricted because it was restricted to certain kinds of experience of, uh, of depression particularly and, and not other kinds of experience. So it's it's really contradictory and and weird, and it took me a long time to to realize, looking back, um, that some of my and I think this may have been true for other people in that period, but some of my experience of my own experience, as it were, was kind of bound up with this kind of um, romance of antidepressants. Mm. I think antidepressants in particular. It's really odd, you know, things getting. De- displaced experiences emotions getting displaced onto um, a version of that that was kind of current at the time and of course that happens to people all the time you know it happens with people with other kinds of illness it happens with people with uh, you know anxiety uh, or anorexia that you are interpolated is the kind of academic uh, way of describing this you are interpreted by the culture at large and you it's really hard not to identify with that. Um, so I, I have thought about this. I, I wrote a piece, a kind of short kind of memoir uh, essay about what it was like to be on Prozac in the mid-90s. You were very aware that you were a person on Prozac in the mid-90s. Mm, fascinating. A real identity. Well, in all they contain, in all their darkness and their light and their beauty and their oddity, these books I think of as belonging in that very valuable category of, of sort of signpost or or nexus books. I actually ran into a friend of mine on the weekend and he um he said he'd just started Affinities and he'd only read like 12 pages and he already had, he already had a list of about 20 names that he was going to then, you know, seek out um, subsequently. And it's hard to imagine anyone reading them without coming out of them exactly with this sort of hunger or these new pathways defined. Are there any books that have that have performed a similar function for you, you know, books that seem to unlock numerous different worlds that you'd never really um, known about before. So I think we've we've touched on, I think, some of the writers um, who've performed that function for me in, in the past, going all the way back to Roland Barthes, where I first read about Eisenstein and Brecht and people like that. And there are others later, like Susan Sontag, uh, William Gass, um, and so on, who 
pointed me, I guess, in the direction of a certain kind of history of the avant-garde, European and and American. Um, But I think that actually, uh, especially since I started writing about art, the that sense of wanting to follow all the leads that sense that there was a world you hadn't quite known was there um doesn't so much come from individual writers as from magazines um from a kind of culture of more collective um more fleeting publishing that kind of opens onto um, histories or scenes um, that you just didn't know were there. Mm. So when I think about the period that I've actually been writing and publishing and how I've discovered areas of culture that I just didn't know about, it's usually been because of a magazine that was mm. attached, you know. Um, it started uh, 20 years ago with reading uh, Freeze magazine, um, and even when I started writing for Freeze, I would pick up an issue and I would read about artists and filmmakers and think, I have no idea what this is. I, I'm just clueless. I need to follow the, these leads. And subsequently, Magazine's Cabinet, who I was also really fortunate enough to, to work with for, uh, for years, um, a magazine like Bidoon, which you know covers uh, art from the Middle East, um, None of this work, none of these histories were or would have been available to me if there wasn't this culture of um, magazine publishing. And now, of course, it might be in print or it might be uh, online. But that, for me, is the kind of uh, fertile field. Um, And it's something that uh, is always changing. Magazines, unfortunately, disappear. But... um, I think as especially as you get older as a writer and uh, as a critic um, and you find that maybe there are no longer so many of the writers that you pick up and think, I don't get their reference points, I need to, to learn. Um, in book form, there aren't those kind of established figures because you, you know your own field uh, in a way. It's really important to pay attention um, to the more fleeting and smaller um, places where people get written about that you just had no idea. Um, and I do think, um, even now, kind of in the wake of, you know, lots of very recent closings of, of literary magazines and, uh, and so on, paying attention to, to that level uh, of writing is just essential, really. Mm. Well, I love that you bring up magazines because magazine writing is is all about deadlines and it's about producing and you write um somewhere about about Cyril Connolly kind of needing all these things to be just so for him in order to write but he could when the when the chips were down bang out 5000 words if you really had to um and i love that you say also you describe yourself as a writer quote for whom crude and quantified productivity is a value in itself so you talk about reveling in the in the increase of, of total word count and presumably in the in the growing number of spines um, on the shelf. Is that is that uh, still the case? Does that still still drive you in a sense? Um, I suppose I still love a deadline. Really, um, uh, some of my editors might think that I don't <laughs> love uh, a deadline, um, 
but there is still to me something really um, inspiriting, some, something driving about the idea that you have a certain space to fill and it has to be done by a particular time. And it's it's not just, or hopefully, it's not just a kind of ego, egotistical sense that if the spines line up on the shelf, it, it's kind of guarantee that you really exist, that you are something uh, in the world. Um, it's something about that sense that in the s space and the time of the deadline of the piece, you have to compact or crystallize something. And one of the things that I really like about writing for magazines or newspapers um, is the feeling that you are writing for an audience that, or when, when it's most exciting for me, is when you, you've, you're imagining an audience, a readership, that knows something of what you're attempting to describe, but you're just trying to, you're just trying to push things slightly further, if you see what I mean. I, I, I like writing about obscure things in, in mainstream publications mm. and quite mainstream things in, in obscure <laughs> publications. Um, there's something, uh, uh, it, it's, I suppose it's that element of being a non-specialist that, that's thrilling to me about, you know, periodical, to use the old-fashioned old term, writing, um, is that you're, you're trying to expose something to a larger audience or you're trying to give an inflection to something familiar to a more specialist audience, if that makes sense. It's mm -hmm. a kind of odd uh, kind of anxiety-provoking state that I get into writing those, those kinds of pieces where you're not quite sure whether your readership knows more than you do um, you're slightly afraid that they do. Um, or, on the other hand, you're slightly afraid that your readership thinks you're just mad for writing about this <laughs> stuff in the, in the first place. Why does, why does it matter? There, there's a, a, a tension in, in that kind of writing that, that is quite exciting to me. Well, finally, Brian, I'm going to quote Susan Sontag at you, or, or back at you, in fact, because this is a quotation that you use in Essayism. She writes, I think this is from her, her journals, um, superficial to understand the journal is just a receptacle for one's private secret thoughts, like a confidant who is deaf, dumb and illiterate. In the journal, I do not express myself more openly than I could to any person. I create myself. So when I read or when I read the quarter of books we've been discussing today, I feel um very close to you in a way, or, or they feel like an, an intimate reading experience. How personal do you consider them and how important are they to your, to your sense of self or as an expression of self? I think the, the curious thing about the last three books, the trilogy as, we, as we've been calling it, <laughs> um, is that I think in a way with essayism, um, various strands of what I'd been writing and thinking and just being in the world kind of came together. And it, it feels, um, to me, it's interesting to know that it connects back to In the Dark Room in various ways. But at the same time, essayism felt to me like the first time that I had expressed 
or had made something that felt like me in a particular mm. way. Um, and some of that has to do with the kind of particularity of that, that book and what it's about and the form that it took, et cetera, et cetera. Some of it has to do with finding, I think, a different kind of readership. Um, and, you know, being published by Fitzcarraldo means a lot in, the, in that sense. Um, but I guess I, yeah, there, there's something about the, particularly these three books that seem like, on the one hand, a kind of like staking out of my territory um, in a way that hadn't happened before, um, but being at the same time able to include a slightly more kind of personal register. And so the inclusion of the personal register is also part of the staking out of my <laughs> territory, right? It's not just about kind of pointing to things in the world and saying, I like this and I like that, you know, which Barth does and Sontag uh, does. It's also about kind of putting um, a version of myself into that work as well. Um, and so I don't know if that's a kind of sustainable way of writing. Um, maybe it is in the book that's to come, but I think, as I was saying earlier, there's there's something, there's a kind of boundary or there, there's something that needs to be kind of broken through um, at some point in my writing that that goes somewhere somewhere else um but yeah i would say about these three books although there are many things in them that i think are I imperfect um that they feel closer to what i might have hoped i would be doing when i was the 15 or 16 year old in the library trying to make sense of roland Barth. right if if i had tried to imagine what a writing that somehow responded to that excitement would be, this is probably a little bit closer to it um, than, well, I mean, I'm just very lucky to have got anywhere near it, right? Brian Dillon, thank you so much for talking to me today on the first episode of the Fitzcarraldo Editions podcast. Mm -hmm.